We're in part four of the unseen fight. In this world, there's the beautiful, but there's also the battles. And we're in this thing called the unseen battle, the unseen fight. Now, I want to say it is an understatement to say that for some of you in this room today, last week, was a real battle. Anybody ever had a week like that where it was a real battle? Can I see your hands? Yeah. What do you do when your world falls apart? Can take many forms. For some of you, it's like this. One day the phone is going to go. It's going to be a doctor. He's going to say, I need to see you. And that dreaded word cancer comes out. In that moment, your will will stop. And you'll be shaken at your foundation. Or your boss calls into the office and says, you are fired. And you're just stunned. Stunned emotionally, paralyzed, fearful. Or you get that call like I did and somebody tells you one of your loved ones has died. Completely unexpected. Or worse, somebody you know, their sibling has taken their life. Some of you won't look like that. Some of you, you will find your spouse walks out the door. Yes, in this room. Some of you will be your friend's spouse that decides to walk. Or maybe a friend who's engaged and then it's broken off. What happened? Maybe one other example, an accident comes along that again has happened in my life already and somebody in our immediate family and, I, and an accident took somebody's life unexpectedly in the prime of their youth. You get the idea? That type of day. Now it's either has happened to you or it will happen to you or it's going to happen to one of your friends. So whoever and however this applies, I would highly encourage you, if not for you, to take notes because you're able to help your friend or your friends when this happens to them. And you go, what do I do? What do I say? Where do I point them? So this weekend, and today, I'm going to talk about the prophet Jeremiah, which Joshua just talked about. And he is in the Old Testament, and in how he deals with this question, when his world falls apart. Now, during his lifetime, Israel had experienced tremendous decimation. And Jeremiah was living in a time of economic catastrophe, economic collapse. That means you've lost your job, so have you, you've got bills to pay, there's nothing in the cupboards, and you're up a paddle with no, uh, with no creek. There you go. <laughs> On top of that, his land was terrorized. Think ISIS. Brutal people. Flaying people alive. And then on top of that, his dear friends and family were slaves, yanked off to be slaves in a different country. This is the background. Can, can you get this? This is war. 
He's witnessing horrific inhumanities and sufferings. My daughter has seen some of those up front. And what people can do to each other, some of you in this room, only a few of you really know. We're on this little land way down the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. The human heart is deceitfully wicked. People are starving. This is, the, this is, this is what Jeremiah is facing. And it hurts. It's okay for me to starve. I'll probably last 40, 50 days with no food. Maybe 40, maybe 42. But it's different this with your children. The nation is in disarray. During this time, Jeremiah the prophet wrote two books about his experiences. What are they? This is, this is, this is the interactive part. All right? What are the two books? Huh? Lamentations and Jeremiah. If you didn't realize, Joshua just told you those two. He primed you for the, for the answers. Okay. Two books. Lamentations is a very, very short book. Extremely short. You can read it tomorrow morning. And what a lamentation is, is it's to complain. When I unload my sins to God, it's called confession. That's confession. When I unload my complaints to God, that's called lamenting. That's how I lament. Lamentations is literally a book of Jeremiah's complaints. Very real. The Bible is extremely real. But in the middle of this book of complaints, there's a very positive message on what to do when all the things you've hoped for fall apart. Or how to rebuild your life when your will falls apart. And that's happened to some of you in this room. If you have your Bible, pull it out. Lamentations chapter 3. I want to look verse by verse through chapter 3. And I want to extract and synthesize six specific lessons that Jeremiah learned in his broken world. I hope you do not need this message today in one sense. But you again should take notes, I highly suggest, because someday you will probably need this. Because how many of you found out life is not smooth sailing, right? It's not all smooth sailing. And again, please think about this for a friend of yours. Because if it's not you, it will be your friend who's going to be in crisis. We'll start with Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 1. Again, if you have your Bibles, pull them out. The first lesson we learn from this chapter is this. When my plans fall apart, the first thing I need to do is do exactly what Jeremiah did. I need to unload all my frustration on God. Tell him exactly what's going on. The turmoil, the angst, the dread, the uncertainty, the insecurity that you're feeling in, in your heart. I need to tell God exactly how I feel to get off my chest there. You know what? Don't worry. He can handle it. He's got broad shoulders. And Jeremiah is extremely bold. Notice the Bible says these things have been given for us for an instruction and encouragement. So what instruction and encouragement can we get from these words that are in God's word? Here he is. He lets out his frustration. 
Jeremiah 3, 1. I'm a man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Do you ever feel like that? You walk around the dark, don't know where to go, how to fix something, a recurring issue. He's turned his hands against me again and again all day long, and he's made my skin grow cold and broken my bones. He's surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. Often those two go together. Something goes devastatingly wrong. Be careful of that bitterness. We'll, we'll drill into this in a minute. He made me dwell in darkness like the dead. I felt nothing. He's walked me in so I cannot escape. He walled me in, excuse me. If in other words, he felt there was no way out. I'm stuck. He weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry out for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's barred my way and with blocks of stone, which are seemingly insurpassable, and he's made my paths crooked. This is a prophet of God. Often the book that's not read. Can I encourage you, even now, before we start the new year, to next year, put aside the way things you've been doing maybe and work your way right the way through the Bible in a year. We're going to give you a reading plan to do that. Oh, many of us are going to do it together. He's just getting started here. And he does this for five chapters. So he's unloading. And that's in the Bible. Why does he do that? Friends, God wants you to know that he can always handle your frustration and your laments. Actually, the entire book is one long complaint. And God is allowing Jeremiah here to blow off steam. To blow off steam. And that's recorded in God's word. It's okay to let God know and to have an honest conversation with him. Not all things will find God. Actually, I'm really disappointed. But then, I love that, but then Jeremiah turns the focus from his pain. He doesn't deny it. He's, what he does is he turns his focus from his pain and difficulties to God's love. This is a turning point. He does not deny. Have you ever met those type of Christians? How are things going? Oh, fine. And they're actually not. That's delusional. That's denying reality. Dangerous thinking that. And I want to point you here to what Jeremiah did. He didn't deny the pain he was going through. And some of you need to stop denying reality. In your business, your first job as a leader is to define reality as it is, as painful as it is, not gloss it all over. Number two, turn my focus from my pain and difficulties to God's love. Here we are, Lamentations 3.19 20, uh, through 26. The thought, now just circle that word thought. We've been talking about this for the past few weeks. The battle is in my mind. Whether you're fighting the world around you with all the stuff that comes with that, or the flesh, or the devil. The battle is in the mind. So, the thought of my pain and homelessness is bitter poison. Bitterness is a poison that hurts you and makes you miserable. 
Bitterness keeps you focused and transfixed on your own pain and misery. And that, if done long enough, will odds on lead to depression. Be careful of that. There's a direct correlation here. You're not going to get over depression until you stop being bitter about some things that have happened in your past and you learn to forgive and you let it go. You have got to let those things go. Not because those people or that situation deserves it, but you've got to give it to God and let him and rest in his unending and perfect justice which will be done. May not have been done yet, but it doesn't mean to say it will not be done. It will be done. I think of it constantly. How's that working for you, Jeremiah? Your pain and bitterness. You happy with that? You keep replaying the same negative thing over and over again. It's true, it's bad, but quit thinking about it constantly. And my spirit is depressed. No kidding. Again, correlation between thinking and depression. No kidding, because you're thinking of this constantly. He says, the longer I think about it, the more depressed I get, this bad situation I'm in, the shocker. Then he says, and here's the switch. Notice this. When he turns his focus from his pain, which is real, to God's love. Notice what happens. I love this. Yet hope returns. When, how, when your world is falling apart, how does hope return? Next part of the verse. When I remember this one thing, the Lord's unfailing love and mercy still continue. Fresh as the morning and as sure as the sunrise, the Lord is all I have, so I put my hope in him. When I've lost everything and my world is crumbling, how does hope return? When I remember the Lord's unfailing love is still there. There's been many a point in my life when things, the world's fallen, the bottom's fallen in my world. And the one thing that's held me stable is the Lord's love and unfailing mercy. You may want to write out the side here, I always make mistakes when I doubt God's love. I always make mistakes when I doubt God's love. And maybe like me, you've learned that you don't know that God is all you need until God is all you've got. We think we need all this other stuff. We don't. We don't. Lamentations 3.31. The Lord is merciful and will not reject us forever. Or he may bring us sorrow. What? God bring us sorrow? That sounds like a heresy. No, that's the truth. People that try and tell you, even well-meaning Christians, I will never have sorrow or trouble, are denying the word of God and reality. That is very dangerous thinking because it's not the truth. It's a lie. The Lord is merciful and will not reject us forever. He may bring us sorrow, but his love for us is sure and strong. I love that. Certain hope. Even in the middle of my pain, he's saying God's love for us is sure, not shaken. People will let you down. Remember, in this church, there's an axiom I use all the time. God is faithful, but people are fickle. God is faithful, but people are fickle. Burn that into your heart and soul. It's totally biblical. 
But then again, notice this. He takes no pleasure in causing us grief or pain. No pleasure. So what do I do? Number one, I unload all my frustrations on God. And then two, I remind myself of how much he loves me and I get the focus off my pain and onto his love and his mercy. A few observations on affliction from Jeremiah. Just as a quick sidebar. Affliction should be endured with hope in God's salvation that is the ultimate restoration. Affliction is temporary and is tempered by God's compassion and his love to sustain you through it. Three, affliction is always in relation to God's sovereignty. In other words, this thing that happened to you by surprise did not surprise God. Vis-a-vis Job 2.10. Nothing can happen because God is sovereign. And also here in 37 and 38. Fourth, affliction should accomplish the greater good of turning God's people back to him. To bring us back to him. You'll see that in verse 40. The next step you do in rebuilding your life after it's fallen is in the next verse, verse 28. Three, get alone with God. That's the third step in the rebuilding process after a crisis, after a tragedy, after a major loss. Don't go to the movies. That's not going to help you one iota. That's not going to deal with the issue. That's a distraction. It's like the druggie. Oh, I can't deal with the pain. I'll take some. That doesn't do anything. That doesn't deal with the issue. Waiting before God is a spiritual habit you must develop to handle stress and to grow as a Christian. People who don't know how to wait in God are anxious all the time. They've got ants in their pants. Even Abraham had ants in his pants. He couldn't wait. And his impatience has caused the division which still exists today in the Middle East between the Arabs and the Israelis, Ishmael and Isaac. God said he'd do it, but nothing was happening so quick. See, we think, I prayed God should answer. Question, how long was Moses in the desert? Mm. How long was he in the desert before that? With his father-in-law, Jethro. 40 years. He's getting old. But we think things should happen. God said, I'm going to give you a baby. Well, that should be uh, next month, right? (laughs) Let's see some signs of this. <laughs> years and years and years and years and years and years and years go by. Oh, nothing's happening here. I have to help God out. God's word's always true. Our f- foible is that we're often impatient. What does it mean to wake, wait on God? Well, often it means to sit down, be quiet, and listen. Now, I'll wager, if I'm allowed to do that, I don't do that, you know that really, right? But odds on, I would almost guarantee you that last week, very few people in this congregation sat for 10 minutes and did nothing apart from wait on God. Wait for him to impress you in his heart, in your heart. Maybe after you've read, did you just stop and wait? Or, oh, next thing, out with my phone, what's happened, what's to have been doing this, you know. 
do we wait? You make time to be quiet and let God speak. Now, yes, you're going to read your Bible. And maybe you're going to pray a little too, which is really important. But I'm talking about literally being quiet. And I want to suggest to you that you wait for, wait for this, 10 minutes. 10 minutes this week, simply waiting on God. Each day, 10 minutes. You've got all the rest of the time to do your jobs, your careers, your business, but 10 minutes. It will revolutionize the level of stress in your life if you'll just learn to do this. Lamentations 3.8. When life is heavy and hard, hard to take, go off by yourself. Enter the silence, something we're not familiar with. Bow in prayer. Don't ask questions. In other words, if I could say humbly, shut up. Wait for hope to appear. Did you know that God wants to talk with you through the Bible? The problem is you're too busy. Too busy to focus on him. When God wants to talk to you, does he, I need to take care of this. I need to do this. I need to do that. This week, into the silence, get in a receptive mode, make sure your phone is not even in the room. In fact, I suggest that you don't even touch your phone or your device until you've been through this. And just say, God, I want to hear from you. I'm eager. I'm willing. I know ready. Jesus taught the exact same principle. Here in the Old Testament, now let's go to the New Testament. Jesus says exactly the same thing here in Matthew 6 6. Find a quiet, secluded place so that you won't be tempted to role play before God. You know what I mean? Impression management. You say things because you think you're supposed to say those things. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. The focus, here it is, will shift from you to God. And then you'll be able to sense his grace. So my challenge to you is to commit 10 minutes every day this week in just quiet listening to God. And just say, God, is there anything you want to say to me? Now you'll be amazed at the new strength you feel and direction as he confirms confirms his message to you and conforms you into the image of God. Of his son. Notice it says the focus will shift. Have you ever noticed that life goes slow in a waiting room? Things seem to take forever. Time creeps in the hospital or the funeral home. It's a good thing sometimes to slow down. Lamentations 3.25. The Lord is good to everyone who trusts in him. So it is best for us to wait in patience to wait for him to save us. See, God's timing is perfect. Never too late, never too early. Number four, when your world falls apart, I need to change the things I can change. Do something where you can do something. None of this, oh, well, it's all in God's. No, it's a partnership, this. Some things in life cannot be changed. What can't be changed? 
Well, several things. Well, your past can never be changed. What's happened has happened. Who your parents were, you can't change that. You can't change that you've lost a loved one. Now, one of the keys to peace is I accept what I cannot change. And faith, on the other hand, is facing the facts without being discouraged. Yep, you say, it's bad. Just like Jeremiah said here, it's looking pretty ugly right now. But I'm not going to be discouraged by those facts. I am going to do what I can do. What can I change? You can change you. You can't change that somebody's died. You can't change that somebody's walked out of your life. You can't change that you've lost a job. And you ain't getting it back. But what you can change is you. You can't change your boss. Don't try and change your spouse. Or anybody else. So save some energy and use that energy to try and change them to change you. Sort you out. I've got enough problems changing myself here. What can I change in me? Well, how can I be better, not bitter, is one of the questions when I'm going through these difficult situations. How can I be more Christ-honoring as my world is radically changing? I have a suggestion. You take an inventory, a relational inventory. How's my relationship to God? How's my relationship to my husband, my wife, my kids, my co-workers? And the moral inventory. What about the hurts and the ha- habits and the hang-ups that are bringing me down? Do an honest evaluation of the things in your life that can be changed. You say, God, what's wrong in my life that I need to change that's, that's causing an offense between me and your Holy Spirit? Actually, the Bible says this in the Lamentations 3, verse 40. Notice the next step. Let us examine like a stock take. Just like you see in Bunnings and things like that, or an inventory. Let us examine our ways. Count it carefully. Examine it carefully, not just a cavalier way, and test our ways, and let us return to the Lord. Another New Testament equivalent of this is in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5, if you want to read that down and write that down, it says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith what? examine yourself to see if you're in the faith Paul encourages us to give ourselves regular spiritual checkups it's his way of saying show me you're a believer live like it Obey the words of Christ. Do the things that demonstrate, without a doubt, the sincerity of your faith. This self-examination has three parts, and I've just quickly put these down. These are not in your notes. But people often say to me, I want to do that, Pastor Ian, but what do you mean by that? There are three parts of self-examination which I believe are clearly biblical and exonerated there by Jeremiah and Paul. There's a test, there's a proof in the perception. The first one is a test. Question, for some of you in this room, this is a really important question. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? That's number one. If so, ask the question, 
Question, have you experienced any significant changes in the way you do life through knowing him? Significant. Three, do experiences leading his presence, his peace, and his joy? So that's a test. So where's the proof? Can you show any evidence that you've really been experienced, that you've really experienced new birth? One of the ways that'll show up is your plans will change. Before you were living for you, going this way. Living for you, everything that was all about you, me, I. The Lord comes along and he interrupts those plans because all of a sudden he says, hey, now we're not living for that set of plans, we're living for my set of plans. And my set of plans are very different to his because his thoughts are way higher than our thoughts. How different are your thoughts? Your habits, are they any different to what they were before? I'm not saying you give up the gym. I'm not saying you give up some of those things. I am just saying that the Lord's priorities take priority. And those things that we all thought that were super important before are right-sized. What tends to happen is these priorities get enlarged and God's priorities get reduced. What he's saying here, as you become a Christian, God's priorities get bigger in your life and have a huge implication and ramification and your priorities that you used to have don't matter really much at all. There's evidence of a change. Are you different from the world in your, the way that you run your relationships? From the world around you or from the way that you used to be? And then perception. How do you recognize the work of the Spirit in your life? And do you? Do you recognize, do others, other people recognize the work of the Spirit in your life? Are you growing in knowledge and confidence and peace? Is the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control an increasing measure coming up in your life? That's why he says examine these things. So we demonstrate the authenticity of our relationship with Christ when we respond positively to Christ's commands and represent his interests, not our little kingdom's interests. His interests. This is how we get traction. Then we will show we are true Christians and not merely pretenders or spectators because there are pretenders and there are spectators. Jesus talks about those. You want to read one of the scariest passages in the scriptures? You go read Matthew 7. Lord, Lord, didn't we say? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we heal? Didn't we prophesy in your name? And then something very strange, Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. That scares me to this day. He says, God, this is a ridiculous in the light of eternity. This is the most important thing in the light of eternity. Maybe once a year, do a personal inventory why? Because the Bible says examine our ways to make sure we're not being seduced by the world and the flesh and the devil, but we're following the Lord. This is a constant fight. Mid-fly. And by the way, when I fly from here to Los Angeles, I start off and I head, where are we? Over here. That's right. I head this way. But guess what? We start off there in our, in our jet and every time along, because of the curvature of the earth and because of the winds that blow us off track, the pilot and the autopilot is constantly making mid-flight corrections. It goes... You can see them on the GPS as it goes. It's constantly just making micro-adjustments because if it doesn't, it sits off in this direction, but it will not get where it intended. 
You have to make mid-flight corrections, otherwise you will not get where you want to get to. The Bible says, examine our ways and test them. Now, when the world falls apart and it stirs up many strong emotions, grief, anger, confusion, doubt, second-guessing, the most debilitating of all of those emotions is fear when these things happen. Fear will paralyze you. So, you ask number five, you ask God to relieve my fears. Jeremiah had many, many reasons to be uber fearful. Not only because the nation was falling apart economically, spiritually, morally, but he had an extremely unpopular message. People weren't lining up to say, come on, tell us, Jeremiah. Because in the times of prosperity, he said, unless you repent, you're going to lose a lot. And he's exactly correct. It was always opposite. It was countercultural. People didn't like the truth that Jeremiah spoke. Sin was messing up their lives and causing decline in their spiritual health. They were running after wrong gods. Things, they were giving first-class allegiance to second-class causes. So in those days, you know what they did? They didn't like you. They booted you out and they threw you down a well. You know what a well is? You'll see some of those in Israel. There's a whacking great hole way down the bottom. There's water, and then they started firing stones. Not like you could miss, right? He's down the bottom of the air. So they'll literally throw you in a pit. That's what it's talking about, pit. Get the conception. Literally in a dark hole he's been thrown, and he's frightened. Lamentations 3, 53, getting towards the end. My enemies threw me into a pit. And then they dropped stones on me. The water flowed above my head. In other words, it's deep down here. And I cried out, this is the end. It's all over. But I called on your name, Lord. And from deep within the well, you heard me. Nobody else did. You listened to my pleading. You heard my weeping. And yes, you came at my despairing cry and told me, do not fear. That's a recurring theme throughout the Bible. Christian, if you're calling on Jesus' name in earnestness, do not fear. Clearly God does not want you to be afraid. I could have given you hundreds of verses that say, often when the Lord arrives and sends and dispatches an angel, often the first thing they normally say is what? Do not fear. That's great encouragement to me. And by the way, I, I can reasonably infer something. When they see the angel, because they say do not fear, I get the distinct picture. They were absolutely freaking out when they saw that angel, and I don't blame them. <laughs> but it's kind of cool that he says even in those things, in, this, in the display of awesome power, do not fear. So like Jeremiah, when your world is falling apart, you do what Jeremiah did. He says, I call on your name, you listen to my pleading. You heard my weeping, you came um, at my, cry, my despairing cry and listen as God tells you, do not fear. So you ask God to relieve your fears. It's what David did. He said here in Psalm 34, 4, I prayed to the Lord and he answered me, freeing me from all my fears. So God brought you here today, some of you, to say, do not fear. Do not be afraid. You don't have to live with fear. 
You can be free from your fears if you trust me and put me first. Then you can expect, number six, Jesus to restore my life. You can expect Jesus to restore my life. You need to pray what Jeremiah prayed in 521 here. Restore us, O Lord. Bring us back to you again and give us back the joys we once had. The only way you will ever find the joy, and some of you have been lamenting, your joy has gone. The only way you will find that back is not through some mechanistic not, uh, method, not through some uh, seminar or, or podcast. Restores Lord and brings us back to you again. The joy is in the Lord. Maybe your life or your business, and that can be painful. Something you've worked for so hard is going down the toilet. Maybe your marriage seems hopeless. Well, it's already fallen apart. Friends, Jesus specializes in new beginnings and fresh starts for you. And when you allow God's spirit to work in your life and bring your thoughts back to him, he will give you the joy again. But you have to slow down and reconnect. Psalm 71, verse 20. You have allowed me to suffer much hardship but you will restore me to life again and you'll lift me up from the depths of the earth. One final verse from Lamentations again. 324. The Lord is my portion. It's on my plate. He satisfies and says, my soul, my Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. Will you say that right now? Let's bow our heads. Would you pray this prayer for those of you who've been through one heck of a week? To say, dear God, you know the turmoil that's been going on in my heart. I give the whole lot to you. I want to turn from this pain I want to turn my focus to your love. You have said that hope returns when I remember this one thing, that your unfailing love and the, your mercy still continue. Thank you that when everything else shakes in my life and is uncertain, your love for me is sure, it is strong, would help me to do what Jeremiah did and modeled. When my life is heavy and hard, to go off by myself, to bow in humble prayer, to enter a holy silence, to not impatiently pepper you with questions and incessant chatter, but to wait for hope to appear. some of you I want to challenge would you be prepared to commit to spend 10 minutes in silence before God for the next 7 days and say Holy Spirit help me to change the things that I can change help me to stop working on changing other people and just Holy Spirit start working on me 
Help me to be ruthlessly honest, Holy Spirit. Illuminate my heart and my motives. To examine my ways and to test them and to return to you, Lord, in areas I already know I have slipped. And most of all, dear God, I ask you to relieve my fears and my anxiety. When I feel I'm thrown into a pit and water's rising and the stones are coming down on top of me, and I think like Jeremiah, like it's the end, I will call upon your name, Lord, from deep within the well. Lord, you will listen to my pleading and you will hear my weeping. And you come at my despairing cry and you tell me, do not fear. So Jesus, I pray as Jeremiah prayed, restore me, O Lord. Bring me back to you again. And give me the joy that I once had. Friends, others of you, maybe you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life. Would you say this? Jesus Christ, I open my life to you completely today and I want to know you. I want you to forgive my sin. I admit I'm a sinner and I need your grace. I want to follow you. So with our heads still bowed, if you prayed this prayer and you really meant it, God heard you. And in a minute, I'm going to ask you to do one of two things. Either take that communication card out and fill the card out and says, I'm committing my life to Christ so I can pray for you and send you some material. Or let somebody pray for you before you leave today. Father, I don't know all that everybody's going through, but you certainly do. And I know that no matter what the problem is, you are the answer. So we turn to you in Jesus' name. Father, may your people be blessed with the comfort of your presence in their lives this week. May your love relieve their fears. May your grace forgive their faults. And may your power give them strength in Jesus' name.